I'm recording. And this is when I would usually say, so don't give up the launch code. But in this case, I'll say, don't give up your private keys. <laughs> Hey, it's Engineering Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm Brian. And I'm Sam. Sam, welcome back for another Hang in the Laboratory. Thank you for joining us. And special thanks, as always, to our supporters who throw us as little as a buck a month. Uh, if you want to help out over there, help keep the lights on at the laboratory, go to support.zengineeringpodcast.com. And... Thank you to our guest this week, that third voice you got to hear in our intro. Uh, this week we got Sam Redock. Oh, I wrote it down phonetically and I'm still going to Redockia. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Yes. Redockia. Although that's why my friends made me have a nickname. They'd always just start and it'd be like Rudd and Rad <laughs> and then people just say Sam Rad. So that's why my Twitter. Oh, that's a good nickname. My online presence. It works out because I like to think of myself as being Rad. Um, <laughs> well, Rad. that's why we got you on the podcast because yeah. we agree. But <laughs> but I am jealous because that's like people call me Kerp and that's generally pretty cool. So I roll with it. Yeah. But your, uh, yours is even better. Yeah. Sam Rad's a really good nickname. No, I'll have to be more strategic in, in naming my children <laughs> for yeah, uh, and totally. benefits. But uh, yeah, but thank you for joining us. I'd say you're our, you're our favorite kind of guest on here, which is to say, when I started to write down, you know, hit points for the intro, it was just, it's like the list is uh, anthropologist, technologist, futurist, speaker, skydiver, <laughs> blockchain expert. Uh, but the real reason we've got you on is also uh, Amazon number one best-selling author. Yeah. Um, Hell yeah. But as our listeners will know, uh, blockchain expert is the thing I have circled. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, student, I'm always looking for an excuse. I'd say a student of the technology. <laughs> I don't. Right, expert is right, thrown right, thrown around, particularly in in our space in the blockchain and crypto side. I feel like in 2017. Was it like the boom, the ICO boom, all of a sudden, right, literally right. like every LinkedIn person's name, <laughs> like crypto, ICO, STO expert. And I'm like, oh, right, right. Oh, consultant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, we actually have a whole episode about what ex like yeah, what the label what means. it means to be an expert and whether or not people should call them that. So I'm even violating our own. I forget what our conclusion word, was, but <laughs> I think it was just that people should listen to them, even if, you know, like, I, I don't remember. It well, might have been in the context of like fake news. So the concept, I mean, that's like a media concept too, right? Of just, right, like, we right. talk about the bigger trends in decentralization and like the decentralization of expert status mm, and moving mm -hmm. to something like a Wikipedia. I don't know. I, so yeah, I, I tend to stay away from that because that's centralization. I will say like advocate. I don't mind when people say pioneer, although I wouldn't consider my, I mean, I've been in the space a long time. I think it's cool, but I didn't necessarily, you know, invent anything. The, you're not <laughs> node. You're like a human the, blockchain. I'm a node. node. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the, the funny thing about the expert title is it's, it's a term of art for lawyers. Uh -huh. you know, like you, you call an expert in court and the threshold 
is so low <laughs> that you like literally it's better than average understanding of the topic is all you have to have to call oh, somebody an expert. Is that the legal definition? Like the legal it's something like that. It yeah, it really is just well, you have to establish it in court. So the first thing you do is ask some questions and you just say, How long have you been practicing science? And they go, Ten years, and you go, Okay, that's my expert, you know. That's great. But but uh but yeah, so so uh I think an interesting place to start. Well, either we can kind of start usually this is the point where I would just sort of say, Hey, give us your background. But I want you to start all the way back at the anthropology stuff because this is the thing that like when i do uh blockchain talks or i'm on panels or stuff like i frequently find myself saying the thing that prepared me the most for ending up where i am in terms of understanding the technology was actually my undergraduate philosophy yeah degree. like having spent four years in this squishy space where sometimes the the, the whole exercise is now you're going to take exactly the opposite stance <laughs> and stand in front of the class and make an argument and it's like okay so like, but I say that in the context of, you know, it's like to be able to see what's happening and realize that it's this weird, uh, like paradigm shift mm -hmm. almost that causes, you know, like it understand, it, like, like it makes sense that people's reaction when you try to explain this stuff is sometimes in the space of like, uh, what? <laughs> like, it sounds magical almost. Yeah, well, jump straight into what it is and start unpacking sort like you know throwing terms like proof of work or proof of stake or distributed ledger and you lose people because if you don't address first and foremost you know that it is a paradigm shift which is something that I do believe and, and on the you know socio-cultural geopolitical all of these levels um you have to first understand that and then believe that mm -hmm. before you even you know, start unpacking the technology because otherwise it will have no relevance to you. If you, you don't believe the underlying hypothesis that our systems are becoming more decentralized, then it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, I think it matters to everyone. It should. <laughs> you know, some people just don't care. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess to go into my history, my, my longstanding history, mm -hmm. uh, I actually... So I have a few different threads that came together. I have two brothers. Um, I, I was a gamer growing up, like pretty into that. So it's cool you had a gaming website. Uh, I also was into film and theater. So I did some acting and then later directing. And so I, I became really fascinated. One, like in real life with human behavior, just like how you can um, socially engineer situations and then you know on my like computer life I was like creating and, and taking part in these like clans and online worlds and um, you know practicing on the weekends and things like that so I I started to kind of notice this duality in, in like got into coding got into like you know computer engineering as well as or in software engineering in addition to the, the social stuff from theater so when I got to college I was like should I study something like computer science or economics, like, nah, like I do that for fun on the side and like build websites or whatever. Um, and, and frankly, anthropology just, I don't know, it, it, it really appealed to me. Like I started in neuroscience. I thought I'd become a brain surgeon or like a neurosurgeon. Cause it was like, Oh, I love understanding how people think. 
Um, and I took the first class and was like, hell no. Like, this is like a thousand person lecture hall. I'm not good at standardized tests. Like, this, this, they're going to like weed me out right away. So I was like, what is. Um, I did that too. The D minus I got in bio 20. That happened to me. So, so that's the reason I actually went to the school I went to was I was so like set on neuroscience. It was like, this is my calling. Um, and then it was quickly not my calling. <laughs> you know, but on the social sciences and social psychology and, and sort of like this angle of studying more from the behavioral side, uh, it really interests me. And then in tandem, I was still doing film and theater and, and documentaries and like directing people. So it all came together. And ultimately in college for my thesis, I really wanted to study like technology. So the anthropology of technology or, or online communities and the department then it was still so conservative. They were like, no, you need to go study like a, a community of people in some remote location. And it just, it felt um, a little limiting. So I eventually convinced them to let me do my thesis on a virtual world called second life cool. from Linden labs. And I, I, did it. I studied as like an ethnography. I lived in the world for six months. Uh, I, my avatar was named ShamWow Oxymoxy, which was, if you remember those things from like infomercials, like ShamWow and Oxymoxy. Like I made yeah, it as absolutely. a joke. I didn't plan to like actually, you know, continue in this other than the sake of like academics. And yeah, I don't know. I made a t-shirt shop. I was selling my digital t-shirts and I was making Linden dollars and, and then realized there were these exchanges for US dollars. It was totally crazy. And then I learned about Bitcoin. So I came into the space in totally like a weird, you know, convergence of different angles. And all of a sudden now it's crazy. Like you'll see these blockchain companies and they're like, we have an entrepreneur or a anthropologist in residence. Mm -hmm. And I never thought, to be honest, that it would be a discipline that became as necessary or respected. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm happy that it is, because I do think, particularly when you're talking about decentralized systems, um, the human element in the social engineering is equally as important in the design as the software yeah. engineering. Well, that's been, I think that's been a uh, aspect of a lot of online communities but it was kind of the afterthought right like we built like yeah. ebay i'm thinking back to like business school case study of how the community was built and yeah. at the time you're like all oh, these cool new technologies on the internet let's build this tech where people can do this stuff and then they were like wait this is so huge we have millions of people we need to like cultivate the the culture here which you hear you've heard a lot about for 10 or 15 years if you've been in in the tech space and software space but i think now especially with that right the the tech is like going back out to the people. So like you're part of the software, you're part of the hardware. Uh, it, it layers mm -hmm. in, in a way where it's like really obvious. It's painfully obvious that you need that perspective on everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, and it's a weird, we're so used, I think in, in human culture, sort of narratives, just what the way we've regarded technology up until recently was very much as mm -hmm. tools, you know, like, Hey, here's a tool. You do a thing with it. Here's a, you know, and, and the line blurs when you start to, you know, talk about it as communication. When it's once it's once it's communication tools, it starts being okay. Well, we have these tools to now do these things in the real world. Even if it's like virtual, you start to look at well, we have these tools now that have created this situation where 
it's not just a hammer or a better yeah. hammer or enough hammers and math that we can go to the moon. Like it, it, it you know, they used hammers. It, it turns into a thing of like, oh man, we built this technology that's now like even the tech itself is so human that we almost need. It, it almost turns like political and by that i mean like it like it turns into this thing where we start to need to we need the lessons from government to start to talk about how we're going to deal with this stuff which of course like my comment on ebay is nobody ever wants <laughs> to talk about the dispute resolution and how important yeah. that was for that community you know but like but that becomes a thing right like you need if you want to have a cooperative community on some level you need you know these weird enforcement mechanisms and and when you, when you talk about blockchain, some of that's built in because you go, okay, well, we can make certain aspects of enforcement right. programmatic. But then there's still going to be like, yeah, but my mm -hmm. feelings are hurt. And like, what do you do with that? Because there's no smart contract I, for hurt that's feelings. That's the crazy part. And... I've like, even, I, we're so far along, but also so early in, um, in blockchain or, or other supporting technologies. But the thing that's the craziest that I hear, particularly in the enterprise space, you know, these networks are in consortiums is like, oh, governance. Yeah, we're working on that. We'll, we'll figure it out down the road. They're like, everyone's like punting mm -hmm. it down the road. And I'm like, no, you've got to start mm -hmm. with governance. Um, for the projects right. that are, are coming from that perspective really excite me. And I think. The and you can't act like it's a simple no. problem. Humans have been trying to figure it out for centuries and we're still pretty bad at it. Like this democracy we have right now here is probably the best we've right. ever done. And everybody's kind of like, eh, I don't know how I feel yeah. about this right now. <laughs> so I feel like we've already gone too long without talking about the book and now you got to the book. So, uh, Bitcoin pizza is the name of the book. You want to kind of, uh, uh, link together, like how everything else we were just talking about gets right. you to like, how did you end up deciding to write it? Uh, you know, so, so in terms of what happened after college, I ended up continuing research through a master's and created a company while I was in college at the same time. So I was, I've founded a few companies. Um, the first that moved into the blockchain space was in 2014. And I ran product for that company and spent a lot of time with our customers and just looking to find like this in 2014, it was like the Bitcoin blockchain. That was the blockchain. Um, Ethereum. Yeah, there were blockchain. blockchain. Yeah. No one knew what this was. So even we would pitch it, and it was like, I remember the early tagline, like raising money from investors, and it being like, the technology underpinning Bitcoin is called a blockchain, and we're using that technology to to do stuff. Um, and in our case, it was to you know we're looking at non financial use cases, so representing physical objects on a blockchain, whether that is you know, a deed of title for a home, your car, um, you know, the early use case then was like the decentralized DMV, like we'll register the VIN numbers of your car on a blockchain and transfer ownership and it'll be totally seamless. So that was kind of the early premise. Um, but what I found working with so many people across pretty much every industry and moving into supply chain was that there was no one knew what this stuff was or why it was important or why these larger shifts uh, or what the larger shifts that are taking place are happening. And then all of a sudden, 2017 happens. And, you know, the price of Bitcoin soars, we see 
company, not companies, networks raising hundreds of millions of dollars in these ICO token sales. And all of a sudden it's in the mainstream media, like Long Island iced tea company becomes the Long Island <laughs> blockchain company. Uh, and Kodak decides to start like making crypto, like miners. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, people's parents, you go home for Thanksgiving. They're like, what's this Bitcoin stuff? Should we buy it? And, and it's like, there all of a sudden was this public discourse. And that's around the time I was working on the side is kind of a joke to create this glossary of terms for people that are like, what does to the moon mean? Or why does everyone have a Lamborghini in the Bitcoin space? Or, you know, what are these stories? What about that pizza story? Like, did someone really spend 10,000 Bitcoin on, on two pizzas? And so it kind of evolved from there where I had, um, you know, fortunately enough, just a network of people who uh, encouraged me to expand some of these cultural ideas. So there's one, you know, there was a lot of information of like, what is the technology? How does it work? And being in the space and seeing these, you know, either like reading the books or seeing the talks and like my eyes would just glaze over. And like, I like technology, it excites me and it still bored me, um, to be honest. And so I just really wanted to make something that was fun and welcoming to newcomers and to people who are like, I hear about this, I read about it, maybe my kid told me about it, or my boss told me about it. And I still don't understand like what the hell it is or why I should care. And then, you know, went from there. So yeah, then, then I <laughs> well, and like I've said, like I've said, while we weren't recording, it's, it's awesome, you. you know, good work, at, you know, achieving what I always used to sort of grumble and say, <laughs> if somebody doesn't do this, I, I might have to do it, which is to to write that book that's accessible in that space of, you know, like converting one person one at a time is, you know, is, is not the way something like this kind of takes hold for all the good, you know, that it could do. And then there's just, there's an interesting aspect of it that like came to mind while you were talking about it just now, which is, you know, there's this, this thing that's, I think a new thing that our wave of, 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 technologists sort of has to deal with, which is like, we've hit a point on the mm -hmm. acceleration curve for technological innovation where like, you know, I think about my parents and they had no TV, then they had T they mm -hmm. had black and white TV. Then it was in color. It's really easy to sell <laughs> color television. You go, Hey, right. it's that <laughs> thing, but in color. And then they had, you know, more and more and more channels, but like, we don't even, most people don't even understand what a database is and how the internet works. And then we're getting in their face and going, oh, don't worry about that. Cause here's a new thing that's even better. Even once like, you explain I, something I, uh, in like, like <laughs> Ethereum to someone, then you need to come along with a new network that has totally new features on top of it. And people are like, what, what's going on? It's it, everything's such an insane pace. I mean, I, mean, I, the, was, I uh, have in my, my journey, I have, um, you know, done some work with some of the larger blue chip IT firms. And, you know, if you start to look at that, they're like dealing with people. And even my previous company is dealing with enterprises that are still talking about like on-prem mm -hmm. servers to move to the cloud. So then you talk to them about a blockchain and they're like, <laughs> what? Like, we don't even, you know, we're not even yeah. making that step yet or don't even understand why that would be important. So, you know, that I was just... <laughs> listening to a podcast where Mark Andreessen was talking about uh, 
the first wave of trying to build electric yeah. money into the browsers. And he was like, we went to talk to the person that Visa had touted. And I think he said MasterCard had touted as their like mm -hmm. internal tech guru. <laughs> and the guy had never used a mouse. And he's like, and this is in like wow. 94. <laughs> he's like, so the Mac had been yeah. out for 10 years. And this guy was still like, oh what goodness. do I do? And they had to go oh, the mouse is right there. And then he was like, we immediately went back and went, <laughs> Not we're ready. taking payments out of the browser. This isn't happening right now. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so, you know, I think I've, I've really enjoyed the book. And so far as, I, you know, I kept even even to the to the mention of anthropology and things like that, like, you know, I really enjoyed the extent to which and, and I recommend it to everyone now as the sort of like, hey, if you want to get caught up on this at your own pace instead of uh, <laughs> me talking to you as fast as I can for a half hour because that's not enough time or me referring you to a cluster of 10 podcasts that are going to take you 10 hours to listen to. <laughs> Here's another option that's accessible and effective. Um, so thank you for that. And everyone should check it out. We'll put the links in the show Perfect. notes and all that kind of, you know, fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, where do, do you want to, you want to, I, I know Brian is itching to talk about sort of manufacturing and, and supply chain things. And yeah, you skipped that as a guru. We, Wait, before we do that, I, I spied something, Adam, Adam dropped parachuting earlier uh, or skydiving. And then I spot spotted competitive skydiver on your LinkedIn, which I guess I missed because I got caught up in the manufacturing part. <laughs> what is a competitive skydiver? <laughs> I don't know. Did you, what did you study? Mechanical, yeah, mechanical. engineering, you like physics? Yeah. Yeah, I decided to learn physics in real life. <laughs> it's like, um, no, I started, so when I like, for some reason growing up, like really wanted a few things. One, to skydive. Two, to like be a Buddhist hippie because <laughs> I like romanticized the 70s and some other things. And so I turned 18 and I took myself skydiving like alone. I just showed up at the drop zone and did it. Cool. And um Basically, I saw a bunch of people who were doing it alone, like competing on a team. And I asked the tandem instructor, I'm like, how do I do that? Can we do that? And he's like, no, you're just paying for your, your <laughs> like, you know, fun little jump. Um, so I actually came back later that afternoon and started AFF, like the, the process to get licensed. I did it in under 15 days and then I was competing. Uh, the the competition that I did was it's called relative work. So it would be four people and you are given a, a series of formations mm -hmm. that you need to compete and you're judged on uh, accuracy as well as the number that you can complete. Cool. So I did that for a while, um, about five years. And then I, I stopped doing it because I, it's a weird community. It's <laughs> kind of like the crypto community. It's like, there's a lot of pressure to stay involved and like be really intense yeah. and, and, like push the boundaries constantly, but pushing boundaries in that context is like, okay, you start jumping out of like helicopters <laughs> and then it's a hot air balloon right. and then it's, you know, you're going to bridge day to do base jumping. And then you're like doing even more base jumping or you're like flying with a wingsuit in a like lead ball next to you and throwing <laughs> that, like, you know, or getting in like a floating, I don't know, like, like pool floats and like jumping with those and trying to ride apart. Like it just got like Too crazy weird. and people were getting um, injured yeah. or killed. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'll take it. 
yeah yeah it's, yeah, yeah. it's an accelerating curve yeah. problem like it's the same as the technology thing like once you're already at you know this yes. asymptotic i've yeah, jumped totally. out of a plane it's like okay well what's left because we don't have a war on so i can't <laughs> yeah. like parachute into normandy you, and and you know like <laughs> fight the nazis so <laughs> have you seen the uh 90s movie with wesley snipes called drop zone oh geez Yes. Was, that was yes. one of my favorite movies as a kid. I don't have as strong an urge to skydive, but I loved that movie. So it could have been that movie or it could have been like other very 90s things. Like I remember seeing videos. I, I forget what that was even called, but it was like people sky surfing or whatever, oh, where totally. you'd like have like a snowboard. Yeah. yeah. So I remember seeing those and being like, oh, this is so cool. I want to do that someday because like I was into <laughs> skiing and snowboarding. Uh, that's probably where it came from. But by the time I started doing it, that was like not a cool thing to do anymore. <laughs> Bummer. It was, that was like fast. Too nice. <laughs> I, when you were talking about the formations and stuff, I was thinking about uh, there was another movie from the time that's I don't I, probably more obscure than Drop Zone called Aspen Extreme that was about because <laughs> I was oh, a yeah. skier at the time. So my thing was like, okay, I'm going to go jump off cliffs. And the funny oh, yeah. conceit under it's Aspen Extreme true. was that these two these two skiers were going to take part in this event that was called the Powder 8. And so the point was to make this like perfect figure eight pattern as you come down the hill through the powder and you're, mm -hmm. you know, jumping off cliffs and stuff. And it was just, it's like, they're funny examples of once you're up to the bar of I'm willing to ski down a mountain and jump off these crazy cliffs and, you know, like, or I'm willing to jump out of a plane then like the next step that's left is kind of this thing where if I were just like, Hey, I'm a dancer. People would be like, okay, but <laughs> I jump out of a plane and then I get in formations with people or like i ski down a cliff. And then I do these things that are essentially, you know, formation acrobatics, you know, dancing mm -hmm. like, Oh, but that's cool. <laughs> you know. Like, and I remember watching the Aspen extreme movie and going, okay, they're trying real hard to find a narrative in this thing. That's already like, I'd rather just go back to watching the like, you know, the, the, oh God, I can't remember the guy's name. I want to like say Warren, Warren Miller. Miller. That's what I was going to yeah, say. Herman. Totally. Just, oh Every year. I'd rather just, just watch badass like, footage. <laughs> I don't They're need the, the story yeah. packaged in there. <laughs> Those were my favorite. I actually, I lived in Park City, Utah for a bit. Oh, cool. Um, which there's quite the crypto community out there in, huh. in Utah. Time. I was just trying to be a ski patroller and like get away from tech for a little bit and, you know, handle some grenades and do fun stuff like blow up avalanches. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I almost did that too. I had an offer to, I, I picked a job in LA on a movie instead of That's going to crazy. do, uh, join the ski patrol at, at park city. It was the year after two people had died in an avalanche. So they were oh, like, we no. got some open slots and everybody else sort oh, of man. backed away from them. And I was like, I used to be a boy scout. Yeah. That's, I was actually living in LA at the time. And then I left LA to go to park city. Cause I was just like, you know, in between things, I got my EMT license wanted a new challenge. Like I love learning things was no longer skydiving. Although I have seen like the skiers that jump off cliffs, <laughs> like with a parachute on with and the then yeah. flip and, and like, that looks pretty cool. <laughs> <But> <laughs> there's like way too much going on there of like dealing with skis and poles and a parachute just right. seems like a recipe for I, disaster. A lot of moving pieces. <laughs> so I wonder, I wonder to what extent, so I, I, it doesn't relate so much to my 
skiing, but it does to my swimming career and sort of the idea of like, okay, I got to get up in front of sometimes like a television audience in a speedo and now perform like, (laughs) you know, when you have a background in skydiving, sort of just this like personal hurdle of, you know, it's terrifying to jump out of a plane, whether you're experienced or not. Do you, do you still think back on that? Like before, like, like I frequently talk to people about my comfort public speaking and my answer is always like, I'm just happy to be wearing pants while I do this. So <laughs> you do learn to channel. I mean, actually, one of my biggest life takeaways came from that sport and it happened. So on my third jump, when you're going through this training, so you have your own rig on, but you have two instructors that are holding on to your arms and legs like you're in a suit so that they keep you stable and you learn how to fall. Because it's not, it's actually very counterintuitive. Hmm. Um, if you've ever fallen off of like a bed or a chair, what do you do? You like put your hand out, you try to grab hmm. something hmm. and breathe. And that's the opposite of what you want to do when you're falling through the sky. Because when you do that, you move stuff around in weird ways, you start flipping and tumbling. Um, so on my third jump, which was like my first jump alone, I like go to grab something hmm. and we start spinning and the instructors get ripped off of me and they're like across the sky um and they tell me okay like if something like that happens like and you find yourself you know in a, a bad situation just pull your parachute so I did and it I'm on my back I'm tumbling I see the bag come between my legs I try to hit it I'm like oh shit oh, no. oh shit it wraps around my altimeter wraps around my fingers I break my fingers and I'm like going to die um and Somehow, and I think because this happened at 10,000 feet, I had enough time to untangle myself, which is incredible that (laughs) that happened. Like time slowed down. It was insane. It was like slow motion. Um, And then I just got back up and and kept going. So I must have been like so high on the adrenaline that I was like not freaked out. But the thing I learned, it was like a really interesting experience in, in, I guess, doing uh, conditioning. So like my body and mind had been conditioned to behave in a certain way when I perceived falling. Um, and so you kind of had to like have this new, very Zen like Mm -hmm. approach to it of you do the opposite of what your body wants to do, which is like get limp and relax Mm -hmm. and have your center of gravity just kind of pull you in your stomach. And that's definitely not, um, again, what your initial response would be. So like, it's been my biggest life lesson of like learning to unlearn things that either we've been conditioned to do in our bodies or in our brains or in our society, um, which is like, I can kind of tie it to technology or blockchain or decentralization that there are so many things we all take for granted because that's how the system works or functions. And, you know, when you start asking hard questions, like what, what is money? Who governs money? What is a nation state? Why do we have these things? What is governance? And like, they're really, that's why there's so much like infighting in the crypto community. Cause we're like asking hard yeah. questions, um, challenging the nature of reality itself. So, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about life in sky, in skydiving. Um, now with public speaking, it certainly helps to manage like, adrenaline and mm. channel it because right. i had a lot of adrenaline in that sport <laughs> i never really thought about 
I mean, it's, it's, it's not as extreme, but you have a similar thing. Like the reason I think people have so much trouble learning to swim sometimes is because you have to do mm -hmm. counterintuitive like, oh, thing. Totally, your body huh? wants to do once you're in yeah. a lot in, in a substance that will kill you. If you stop moving, people yeah. panic and they behave in a certain, and similarly, like to be good at that sport, I've, I had to unlearn a few weird things around like breathing, breathing rhythms and, yeah. and, huh. Interesting. and, and actively like. Oh, undertook certain things where like my events were really short. And so mm -hmm. there are places where you're for efficiency's sake, you don't want to breathe, but your brain starts yeah. screaming at you for oxygen and you just have to go. It's not been 40 seconds yet. I know you don't actually need it. I'm going to keep <laughs> going. And then like eventually you train yourself, but I never really thought of the extent to which that's in itself training for unlearning things mm -hmm. that you're, hmm. that might seem intuitive and the extent to which even that prepares you for this sort of what you're just saying about the, the yeah it's such crypto a community a level yeah metaphor i've met a lot of scuba divers which is kind of the opposite sport of skydiving in so many ways <laughs> and i haven't done it yet but it seems like they refer to a lot of these things around breathing and you know how you want to breathe more quickly in a situation that you know you're dying and you have to slow down like in that we used to do these breathing exercises and it was always like we would tell the junior swimmers no the it's it's actually supposed to teach you that smooth yeah. is easy and whatever that you know and smooth is fast kind of kind of lesson because you mm -hmm. want to burn as little oxygen as possible so the it's counterintuitive because you don't want to go as fast as you can to get it over with faster that's actually not how you freak out like instead mm -hmm. you take the extra 10 seconds, but you don't burn as much oxygen. It's the same thing with, I've, I've actually done some scuba diving and the it's, it's panic. is not helpful in that moment because your body starts consuming more oxygen. So like <laughs> every second you spend panicking, you're losing 10 seconds of your life if you're really in that situation. And so, yeah, so you have to sort of train yourself into this place of going, okay, <laughs> like, how do we <laughs> don't freak out, but you know, and it's funny because now occasionally I have that feeling where, you know, sometimes even my wife will say to me, like, how come you're not freaking out right now? And I'm sort of like, I'm not really sure. Am I dead inside? <laughs> <laughs> like, should I be? <laughs> you're right. I should probably be freaking out, but I'm not. Yeah. So, so man, how do we, how do we transition from that? Let's just, back to let's the, just jump back. So I interrupted. Crypto, here's the, here's the good. Yeah. But it was, oh, we, we were going into manufacturing. It was a glorious tangent. But so I think we can get back there if we chase through sort of when you're talking about the big questions that come up in the sort of the mm -hmm. crypto space. And, and really that's, that's what I see, right? Like I see everybody fighting and I generally don't wade into it. Cause I'm like, yeah, it's, I, I don't, I'm, I want to build stuff and fighting with you is not going to help me build stuff. But like what I do see is occasionally, especially in my space where I'm trying to deal with it in the justice sense and so then naturally sort of in the governance space every once in a while i want to say a thing and i'm like that sounds way too much like thomas jefferson or some shit like like it sounds like <laughs> something that somebody would say and, and all you know we hold these truths to be self-evident that the, you know and i'm like yeah. ah. but like those are the kinds of conversations that are coming up sometimes in this space because it really is like big problems and social you know, it, it's, it's part, partially, it's a reaction to the globalization of just everything really yeah. suddenly mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the internet got out before they could check it. And now everybody's going, Oh shit, everybody's connected now. And then like, 
So that's the thread. Yeah. I mean, the supply chain right. thread is where I thought in my case of like, you know, we had the globalization of communications, of our production networks, of, of everything. Um, and that's what led to the trust gaps in almost every other system. So more and more intermediaries, more and more people where, you know, in doing work, even with most known, you know, brands or products, like you don't know your supplier or your supplier's supplier, or where like things come from or how those systems are working. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was a natural response to that accelerating and almost overnight change and convergence of things like the industrial revolution and, you know, communications technologies and mobile phones and all of the crazy things that happened all at once. I think maybe just like, if we're going to jump into the supply chain conversation, do you, yeah, do you and Brian kind of want to jam <laughs> for a second on like, what, what is that? I feel like it's worth taking a couple minutes to just sort of follow the path, explicitly follow the path that people probably intuitively understand that like, you know, no. gets a fidget spinner to your door once you order it from Amazon. Right. No one's like, ever thought about that unless you've worked in, in supply chain. <laughs> they're just like fidget spinners come out of thin air and yeah, show up on fair. the store shelves. <laughs> Dropped off from a drone. Uh, yeah. The stork <laughs> drops them off. I mean, that is the crazy change. Again, it goes back to how quickly both the industrial revolution and globalization and of production changed because we went from, you know, the localized trust of like in the fifties or sixties, even as, as recently as that of like, I go to the local dressmaker or dress shop and they tailor it for me and, and make, you know, and they source this, you know, fabric from some person down the street who's dying it. Like it's, it was all. They tell you it came from France. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in the case of a fidget spinner, you're sourcing materials. I mean, what if it's plastic? You know, maybe it's coming from, you know, oil petroleum, which is from one area around the, the world. And it goes into a distributor and, and then you're sourcing, you know, metal parts and bearings that are produced in a contract, you know, a manufacturer in another country and, um, you know, a brand that's consolidating all of this, but they're not being assembled until they're, you know, reaching the Amazon distribution warehouse. Or in the case of Amazon, they're probably just, you know, making it themselves through their own network. Uh, but, you know, it's crazy things that I've learned in supply chain. So like I was working with some brands, they were uh, cosmetics brands, uh, and we were looking on the sustainability side of like, okay, we want to prove and verify these claims, whether it's like certified organic, certified, you know, ethical supply chain, whatever thing you want to say. And so there, it was a cosmetic that had glitter in it, like a glittery eyeshadow. And so I went down this crazy rabbit hole of like, okay, because you're looking at like 50 or so chemicals that end up in this thing coming from 50 or so locations. And then you wonder, okay, beyond just the synthesis of this chemical, like where does glitter come from? What is glitter? Mm -hmm. And As it turns out it's, it's <laughs> mica, like the rock, the mineral from a mine. So they mine this in two areas, the two most prominent areas where you can get the glitter and this also ends up in auto paint. So pretty much any person listening who drives a car that has that nice little like shimmery, <laughs> paint, you know what I'm talking about, like yeah. the metallic pearl. <laughs> um, so you go there and you see these, 
unfortunately, because of the nature of mica and how small it is, you need small fingers, I guess, to uh, pick it apart or, or get it out of the mine. So it's mostly children who are working in these mines. Wow. And there's this whole, you know, effed up situation of families that are, you know, selling their kids as indentured servants to the local mine for mica. So like when you start, and this is the stuff that really pissed me off because on one <laughs> hand, coming from this like, you know, slightly uh, idealistic blockchain can change the world, you know, not my perspective, but that's like the space, especially around that time was like blockchain can solve every problem for everything. And, you know, the more I spent in terms of working with all sorts of companies. So like we're talking aerospace, automobiles, cosmetics, food, pharmaceutical drugs, like pretty much everything we touch has a supply chain. And that's, I mean, digital supply chains exist too. Media comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when you start to go up the chain, you often see things you you really don't want to mm -hmm. see or learn. So that's just one example. Like that's one ingredient in one yeah. eyeshadow. And it really, you know, that's where I started getting into I don't think blockchain to just track this stuff or identify this stuff or, you know, maybe prove that it came from the one mine where there isn't child labor is enough. I think if we look at it as an inspiration to actually change our practices mm -hmm. around manufacturing, not just like validate that, you know, it, it's ISO 9000 or whatever, um, but actually use it to produce things more efficiency or, or efficiently or sustainably, uh, you know, it excites me. So supply chain, I spent all this time like going up the chain, figuring out where things actually come from and in the nature of how they were produced. Um, it just, it didn't feel enough for me to be using a technology or combination of technologies simply to like verify that something was made in a certain way or made in a, you know, what's perceived to be a better way. Um, or at least just even showing the information of like, yeah, glitter comes from a place. Um, so I started thinking higher level about manufacturing. So the nature of production, how things are produced and how that will change as these bigger trends from centralized systems to decentralized or open systems um, have happened. And it's happened, you know, in, in many other industries, if you even look at something like you know, open source software movements from, you know, closed systems. And so what would that look like in manufacturing? So I think like from my angle, it was like, I want to make things in a better way, better for people, mm -hmm. better for the planet, uh, you know, what have you, any value that, you know, personal values that you have. And so we're seeing all of this, like what particularly irritates me is greenwashing. And so I've worked with a lot of brands that are like, this is organic or this is sustainable. Like, what does that mean? This is sustainable. There's like no standard of right. what that means. And so I kind of came to this conclusion because I was like working on a company to, to help like create these standards or enforce these standards that, you know, the real solution is just produce things in a better way. And if we can use technology to compress the supply chain, so kind of like go back to, Mm -hmm. more localized production on demand and not having like excess inventory. Uh, I saw a lot of this in the apparel space. Like, you know, we're producing 52 fashion cycles 
a year that like once wow. a week is a new fashion season and they you know the the fast fashion companies will change it every week and then the rest of it gets burned or sent over to you know countries in east africa which you know have decided to create a coalition saying like we don't want your leftover clothes <laughs> anymore like we yeah. want to create our own local economies and brands and and support our local oh, designers so yeah there are all these like kind of global again on the, like the economic or geopolitical side or the illicit trade markets where there's so many problems and you know something i thought that would be cool would be you know, like a, a global network of, let's say they're 3D knitting machines. And so you use a blockchain to store the IP, like the design file of this Supreme t-shirt. And if you want to create it, whether you are in, um, you know, New York or you're in Berlin or you're like wherever you are around the world, it unlocks the file and creates it. And we're seeing that already, like GE um, is doing this. So with aerospace, like airplane parts or placement parts. So instead of producing a ton of like nuts and bolts and screws or, you know, jet engine blades, um, there are, you know, industrial 3D printers, metal 3D printers on site at an airport. And anytime, hmm. you know, the part is needed, you create the part. Right. As opposed to creating millions of parts and then yeah. letting it sit and gather dust in a warehouse for years. I mean, um, so that excites me. And like manufacturing for me goes beyond that. It's even in, in food production. So, you know, vertical farming and all of the trends there of kind of like the on-demand local production of things. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think when you start to explore that, it gets into the space that I'm always, like I'm hesitant to jump into because it's the territory where like quickly it gets into that space of like people's eyes cross if you're trying to talk about why the stuff is yeah. weird, but that's also what we're here for today. So uh, it you know, like if you track why stuff expanded the way that it did, like some of it is about what it takes to manufacture mm -hmm. things and, and costs and stuff like that. And some of it is also just about trust which this is that space where as soon as you want to try to explain how the systems work and why trust gets into it, people start to go like, I, yeah. what a trust is like a thing that flows around is a weird thing to try to think about. But like part of the, you know, it's, it's this weird idea of, look, when you used to have a local tailor, yeah. you can, you can trust that person, but it's like, because you were introduced to it by your parents who then, you know, it's this person and you can literally go, Hey, Joe, this, this, I'm mad at you. It <laughs> yeah. sucks. Like, but, and, and we grew to this sort of globalized economy where we trust these brands yeah. now. And, and again, like rightfully so, so in terms of human behavior, like if you want to trust a thing, you got to go to these, you know, to these, to these hubs of trust and almost accountability. Cause there's like, from as a lawyer, my perspective is, okay, is there an entity here I can yeah. sue because I don't know them personally. So I can't like shame them in the, in the town square if they fail me. I mean, I can to an extent, but it's mainly angry tweets and Yelp reviews. Like, and so when you talk about needing to put like, to put the stuff in place, you know, the greenwashing thing is one of those things where even the guest we had on recently was just literally said, I'm sick of this greenwashing bullshit. And it's like, on one hand, it's, it's getting weaponized to sell us yeah. things that aren't necessarily what they promised to be, but it's also an effort to build accountability and trust into this thing where we're going, okay, this globalization had to happen for us to get to our, you know, sort of 
point of capitalism capitalism and consumerism that we where where we live now but now we're trying to pull it back and we're trying to say okay well it's the way to do it with certifications and labels and i think what you're saying and and this this doesn't surprise me is when you when you use this new technology to try to that's like okay so we haven't been able to get granular enough in terms of these certifications and here's this new technology so let's try to get granular and then we started to you start to do that and then you go yeah oh no like there is no, there's not a way to rein this in without increasing the cost or the, you know, the, like rein this in within the current system to, to without, without increasing the cost so much that people are grumpy because they're closed. Right. I mean, apparel is the so, worst industry. The margins are shrinking, you know, to a point that right. factories, they're shutting them down left and right. And so on one hand, you know, if they can stand out or amplify their message and that's enough in demand by the consumer that, you know, they, they can charge a premium. That's great, but that's just not the reality of what you're seeing. Yeah. Well, and so then you have to start looking at things like, okay, so one great place to cut down costs would be if we don't have to ship the thing and pay for gas and pay, you know, and all that stuff. And, you know, as you start to chase out this, okay, how do you actually make this exist? It becomes this thing. And I think this is the place where it gets real weird for the, (laughs) for the TV to, to color TV, to cable TV, you know, generation. We're kind of sitting here going, okay, we want some of the things to be in color, but some of the things to be black and white, but then the black and white stuff, you're not going to have to trust the net. You're not going to have to trust the broadcast Mm -hmm. networks because that was one of the problems that got us to the thing that was, didn't work. And now we have to double back and we're going to, and so like the local piece, it's interesting because we don't have the generations it would take to have the local trust in the same way, but we built the granular tools to still let you trust that network on a local scale. And then it just gets, it's just gets stupid weird. Cause then you have to start going like, okay, what really matters here is the intellect, like, okay, intellectual Mm -hmm. property. And if that's just an idea or a design for a shirt, that can be, we can send you that through the electronic transmission line. So that doesn't have to be driven by a truck and the, (laughs) like, and anyone can weave. Yeah. That was, we figured that out in the industrial (laughs) revolution. So so why can't we just, ha- you know, and it's at, it, we, on the podcast, we had a long conversation about this in the context of drugs. Cause at the time they had just like yeah. EpiPen oh, yeah. debacle had just happened. And immediately there are hacker websites going, yeah, but you can get an injector for $2. And if you just have a, 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 a an epinephrine subscription, you can just fill a sir- yeah. prescription. You just fill a syringe, put it in the injector and have yourself a five and a half dollar mm-hmm. EpiPen. And that caused us to go, oh man, what's going to happen once people can just like buy the chemical yeah. formula for fentanyl and then whip it up in their kitchen I mean, that, with a chemistry That is kind of what's happening. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on your beliefs in terms of the level of, you know, or role of regulation or, or you know, on your body. Um, so, you know, that yeah, it's a little scary than the notion in the drug side. Um, but at the same time, and right. having spent some time in the pharmaceutical industry, not because I wanted to, but because that's where my company found its product market fit in seeing things like this of kind of the the monopolies and control um, that can be, you know, controlled or or unfair for certain people who need these medications. And you know, I think alternative systems 
or at least a, a good thing. I, mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, people should be shooting up and creating fentanyl in their kitchen. <laughs> if they want to do it, they're going to do it. And that's kind of the other argument I have when I'm starting to think about like, there are all these arguments, whether you're talking about Bitcoin or yeah, open sourcing chemical or, or you know, biohacking or things like that. People have found a way to, you know, conduct illicit trade in our existing systems. Like money is laundered through our biggest banks today. Mm-hmm. Um, again, spending time in the supply chain space, like these, the gray market and illicit trade markets that exist, you know, even the brands, they don't want to fix them. They don't want to fix counterfeit trade. No one does. And like, that was kind of the angle we started in. And then I quickly realized, oh, these are problems people, you know, they're not going to say it publicly, but they don't want to solve them. So hmm. right. I don't see any harm in, in experimenting with new systems, whether that's the one that's like adopted and, you know, socially and legally. Um, I don't, I don't know. I can't speak to that, but I can say that I think it's, it's definitely good to challenge things. Well, and I think my, my rambling, you know, <laughs> comment before was, was sort of like what it's getting to is when a new technology like this pops up, it necessarily, you know, or, or just inevitably or whatever it looks like as a technologist sort of exposes things that we didn't necessarily <laughs> Uh, want to know or expect or you know but in the end they in this case it turns out to be good in that we know now that there's this thing of like oh this this just the way this system of consumerism has to work is mm-hmm. not sustainable and then the answers end up being to fix that is more granular tracking is not the answer. I mean, it's nice if you can have the granular tracking, but the accountability that that lets you build in has to be around things like more like how close to my house was this produced than necessarily. Yeah. You know, that's what I uh, found in the space and going on that journey myself of wanting to, um, you know, get more granular in the information or data or certifications or whatever you could provide to someone who cared or wanted a more personal experience. Because not everyone cares about it being locally produced. Not everyone cares about it Mm -hmm. being, you know, cruelty free, or they care about animal, like everyone has different values. Um, I do think there are some universal things that we should be thinking about. So sustainability, both in terms of a economic system and our, you know, our planet is important. But um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I started thinking of like, okay, this needs a new system. Like we can't be looking at this through the lens of just, you know, retrofitting or marginally improving, even though that's from a business model perspective, often the best kind of startup is like, I'm going to like incrementally improve this one thing. Um, And I have this problem where I can't just do that. I'm like, I want to like reinvent uh, the wheel, maybe it's like not the best from a business perspective, but uh, I do think we're at a, a very pivotal moment in history. Like I think if there's yeah. ever a time to do it, it is now. Yeah, that's an, it's an interesting time because I think our, our generation, maybe the generation uh, behind us, ahead of us, this, this chunk of time for people is we live in a time where science fiction is happening Mm -hmm. and where 
everyone has ideas all day about how to change the world and they're practical to discuss, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's reasonable to go to your friends, let's start a spaceship company yeah. right now. Like that's, that's totally reasonable. <laughs> there are a bunch of, <laughs> so, uh, we've had guests on who will fund it. If you have a good enough idea for a spaceship so the, company, nope. there's this, it's an, it's a weird, I was going to go to a place. I was going to ask you how, uh, I was going to ask you, cause you mentioned this before, I think we started recording about how, uh, sometimes you end up down a dark rabbit hole, like in a presentation or in a question and answer session. And in a time where I think there's so much focus <clears throat> on negative aspects of technology, I mean, kind of right now, like a very small time window, right? The last couple years almost mm -hmm. has been like a very intense look at all the harm we're doing. Um, but in the most most of history, if you look back uh, in a, with a positive light, you can see all the all the good stuff that's come from technology as well. And how do you maintain uh, the positive view of the future? How do you present that? And kind of what does that look like for you? Great question. Um, and also coming from like other parts in my academic studies, I was like super fascinated with utopian and dystopian literature, hmm. um, as with probably most technologists. And so, and I definitely, the dystopias are way more marketable and way more interesting. Like no one wants to, <laughs> totally. I, when I'd read the utopia, I'm like, <clears throat> okay, so everyone like can do the things they want for fun and <laughs> There's no such thing as work and, you know, like, it's not that exciting. There's no drama. But, and I think the narrative in discourse right now, it is, it's maybe because it's just more marketable, both in mainstream media or we have Black Mirror or, you know, mm -hmm. it, like these concepts of uh, fear around technology and automation. And so I definitely go down that rabbit hole in more of a, I don't know, it's like indulgent. It's, it feels more like entertainment to mm -hmm. do that. And so what keeps me positive, um, and, and I'm fortunate to participate in communities that do kind of come from um, more of like an abundance mindset versus a fear mindset. I just try to, to look at it of from the perspective that with the technologies that we have today, we can solve all of these like grand challenges, like all of the biggest problems in the world it's not a technological problem. Like feeding everyone on this planet isn't a tech problem or giving, giving access to clean water. It's not a tech problem or saving, you know, the rainforest. It's not, these aren't tech problems. These are social problems. So on the flip side, I'm not like pointing my finger and blaming technology for any of the stuff going on. It's people's use of the tool in, mm -hmm. in ways that are, you know, supporting a system of, you know, an un unsustainable system, a system of like unsustainable growth, you'll hit a point even in like manufacturing stuff where you can only hit, you can only ever hit 100% efficiency, then what happens, you know, is you can only get to the top there. And so I think um, what excites me is that it is a, like, the transitions that are occurring in the paradigm shifts are mostly social right now. And that's what's necessary to lay the groundwork to then have technologies or use technologies in a new way. So I would be lying if I said I didn't think about it. Like I, I'm like obsessed with the idea of this, the social credit score in China and like mm. surveillance capitalism and all of this mm. stuff of like, oh my God, like the, the global tech panopticon, these things that like, you know, we hoped wouldn't happen, happen with internet, you know, the internet 
And, right. you know, a lot of it has happened, but a lot of it also is like people are working to um, improve this and, and hopefully empower and, and democratize access to, you know, information or to food or resources. And so I, I do feel optimistic about it. I mean, I hope we're not just building space companies to you know, <laughs> mine the asteroids and, and move the global elite, like upload their consciousness into robots that get to live, outlive us all as we like, you know, ride on Right, into the altered carbon satellite backups of our consciousness. Uh, Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that that even sort of ties back to, like, the interesting thing at the tail end of all the blockchain stuff, and this even came up in the conversation we mentioned with the other episode with another founder, Um, like, and to the greenwashing thing, like, when when we talk about greenwashing, it's, it's generally with frustration because it's like we feel like we're uh, like we're being manipulated, but it yeah. works, which means that there's this sentiment out there where people are like, "Well, I want to buy the green product, I just don't know how." And the best I can handle thinking about in this overwhelming situation yeah. that is a grocery <laughs> store is like, "Well, that yeah. one's got a leaf on the label, <laughs> okay." But like, but once we, you know, and so it's interesting because it's. It used to be, it was a tech problem to try to track all that stuff so that we could have Mm -hmm. a faithful answer for those things. And more and more, it's not a tech problem. It ends up almost being Mm -hmm. like a statistics problem, like a math problem where once we have all that stuff, and this is one of the exciting things about the potential of of something like blockchain, it's like, if you can have that open granular way of doing all this stuff, then we can start to have new Mm -hmm. metrics and then we can trust those metrics. And so if that metric needs to be, well, it's not about this aspect of the supply chain, it's about this aspect, then we can actually just give people a score yeah. that they know that they can trust and they can go, oh, this is where it falls on that scale. Now I can make choices. And and the thing that gives me hope is they yeah. want to make the right mm-hmm. choices there. Mm-hmm. They just don't, everyone's just overwhelmed all the time <laughs> and they don't have the tools to make those choices. But again, it's just an engineering yeah, I mean, and that's where I think, again, um, even in my the wacky ideas of completely reinventing the system, I think you do have to start with that. Like, that's the first step. Um, and I do, again, I, I find it incredibly encouraging that companies recognize the marketing benefit of uh, some of these claims, whether it is local production and or, you know, sustainability or uh, human rights, like whatever it is people care about. Um and it's great that younger generations like really care about this and are making decisions in that way because they've grown up, you know, globally connected. They've had access mm-hmm. to information. They're all like mm-hmm. way more even, you know, I went through kind of the, the transition of, um, you know, even in my growing up, like having a computer, like I didn't have like a cell phone and, the, you know, all of these things have changed so quickly. Right. So that we weren't allowed to cite Wikipedia in school papers. Yeah, that is, yeah. That is that's one. the <laughs> internet. You can't trust it. Yeah. And now it's like, um, what's an encyclopedia? Yeah. <laughs> um, sweet. Well, I I feel like that's a pretty solid place to wrap it up in terms of the 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 you know way we try to come at the problems. You know, I think uh, we covered so much cool stuff, but it ends in that place of just you know. Uh, everything's everything's <laughs> awesome i don't know I you know like, so. you know 
I hope the, you know, conversation kind of helped the listener at least, you know, sort of enjoy this stuff and and kind of, you know, catch some of the blockchain stuff that's not as in the weeds as as sometimes Brian and I are when we talk about, oh, well, it's going to make it so that you can track the value in everything and uh, just, you know, yeah. But what it really comes down to is facilitating bigger social changes that we maybe didn't have the tools to measure before if we Mm -hmm. want to consider something like there's no reason that shirts can't be produced in the city that they would be shipped to so that every shirt I buy isn't coming on a boat from China. Yeah. You know, for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, Um, I mean, again, this is where you have to approach it from a, it's a shift more for me when it like the aha moment is that it, it's a shift in mindset and whether you're talking about blockchain or any other technology, um, first and foremost, you need to come from that frame of reference of that opening our systems or, or maybe like siloed data and data ownership and selling data as a business model. Maybe that's no longer the business model. And instead of being afraid of that and kind of like, you know, building up your walls and continuing to do that, recognize that, it will enable entirely new business models um, that maybe are not around that initial premise. And so that's like a very, for companies, of course, the entrenched ones were like, that's their business model. Of course, we're going to be like, no way. Like this is a scary concept. <laughs> that's not how the world works. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> like what? You are insane. I think that's part of um, the, uh, but, the transition you know, to decentralization is a uh, move away from hiding things. Right. I think it's moving away from yeah. and, and kind of privacy too, right? It's about it's about opening up and participating and being in control and having some control in situations and sharing what's necessary to to be part of the system. Totally. I mean, or having mm-hmm. more choice. So even on the topic of privacy, it's choosing to have privacy when you want it and it's choosing to open up mm-hmm. when you want it. We just don't have the choice, right? There's no as a consumer, when I'm using a service whether it's, you know, the Google Hangouts or email, like, I don't have a choice in the matter of saying like, you know, Google's reading all of my emails and then serving me ads. Um, so, you know, I think it's nice in the future. If I want that, if I'm like, here, yeah, it's, I don't care. Nothing to hide. Give me a better experience in my life. Um, you know, I'm all for it. I just, I feel like people do deserve uh, that level of autonomy. Well, and it, it kind of gets me to, I think, what really underlies the excitement about blockchain, like as much as it's fun to talk about a new technology to people, it really feels like the, and again, this is one of those things where you say it and people go, yeah, whatever. It, it feels like the work being done in the context of blockchain technology and how it applies to decentralization is the last step. Mm-hmm. And after that, there are almost no engineering problems left. Like we got to figure out <laughs> Ebola yeah, <laughs> if you want to consider that an engineering problem, but like beyond that, there's you know like like even when it comes to things like carbon removal, like we have a thing that works, mm-hmm. and the system that we have in place will cause the price to drop until it works effectively. Like to say that's an engineering problem that can't be undertaken. There's not there's not too much stuff left, and so what's left now is like you just got to do the work on making the tech that science whipped up yeah. fit into the yeah, society social, needs to you know, catch like, up with it, our tech it's, 
That's the thing. That's what's happened, right? right. The government, which our... make it just start partially like self important for me because I'm like <laughs> on a podcast talking about this stuff. Yeah. But it's like that's what kind of yeah. what needs that's, to happen. Um, yeah. So, so it's not a thing that like it's it's not you have to learn engineering to solve the problem anymore. It's it's <clears throat> anyone can learn it. By reading your book. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I think honestly the work you're doing um no, not, yeah, like it's the book. I actually do like to consider myself and even just my father and grandfather as storytellers. Like they're great storytellers. And I think we're at a point, well, one, historically as human beings, that's always been kind of the basis of community building and i think the work you're doing whether it's a podcast whatever form of media documentary a podcast you know sharing stories at conferences writing books writing fiction um it's also important because that that's the we need to be having conversations to then you know inspire people to use the tech and and like actually combine these things in new ways and, and build better systems so I think storytelling, the role of it right now is so important and not to, um, you know, undervalue the role of engineering because coming from like the, as a technologist myself, I love building stuff, but you know, that's why I gravitated more towards the the social challenges. Yeah. It always comes back to a story and how people interact and create the story, right? You can create all the technology you want in your garage, but unless you can tell a story and get it out into the world, uh, it's it's not going to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it re reminds me of running a engineering team and product organization and even the uh, like agile development and having user mm -hmm. stories, like their stories as a user, I want to do X, Y, Z so that I can do, you know, this or that. And yeah, I mean, I think if we can value stories more, <laughs> like in the forefront of everything, I think that's a good step. Well, I think the idea that startups have anthropologists in residence is, you know, we're, we're <laughs> totally. going in the right direction when, you know, it's easy. Like the idea that STEAM education is now starting to creep in there and the idea that the arts yeah. are actually a valuable thing, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the number of things that I learned in shop class that are still critical parts of how I think about the world. And I, and when I think that, oh, shop class isn't really a thing anymore, yeah, kind of like, I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if that's the right tack yeah. to take if we're trying to prepare our youth for the, you know, the actual challenges of adult life, mm -hmm. <laughs> needing to build things occasionally. Um, Assembly. Anyway. Ikea for number one. Yeah. I mean, exactly. <laughs> so who knew that? I mean, just, let's just make it that. I mean, <laughs> even that would be class. valuable. Just let's just build some <laughs> Ikea. For, it's like Legos. You yeah. Know? Um, well, awesome. Thanks for, yeah. thanks for, thanks for coming to hang out. And, and, and thank you for writing the book and all that. We'll put links in the show notes to all that uh, fun kind of stuff. So people can follow down all the various rabbit holes we did or did not chase on this one. Do you have other, other places that people can follow you? Yeah. I, I Twitter, I spend time on Twitter, uh, at Samrad official and that's the same you know handle of okay. all the other social networks but i'm most active on twitter well thanks to the listeners as well for hanging out it's been another yeah. engineering podcast i'm adam i'm brian i'm sam thanks for hanging out everybody